Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through some of these concepts and truths with. If you don't, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd love to see you there or at one of our Sunday gatherings really soon. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Yeah. Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Last week, we began a new series called New Normal, which is drawn from a common phrase being said around the world today. For the next four weeks, we're going to look at four practices that the early church and the earliest followers of Jesus have rooted themselves in for over 2,000 years. We're going to ask this question among others. In a world that seems to be changing quickly and our habits and our patterns of life have been disrupted, what hasn't changed? When everything seems like a new experience or a new normal, what ancient pillars of truth and practice can support us? We believe that the practices of these early followers of Jesus are kind of four tethers to the past that can anchor our spirit and our soul even today. We're focusing our attention on Acts 2.42, Uh, which pulls back the curtain on the early church, uh, giving us a glimpse of what they believed and how they lived. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early church in the book of Acts, uh, these were the earliest known followers of Jesus, committed themselves to four things. Four things. Teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Essentially, as a community, they put their full weight behind these four primary activities. Now, it's important for us to note that these early followers uh, did not have the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. They didn't know the Lord's Prayer. They didn't even have the letters that Paul or John uh, wrote that comprised the majority of the remainder of the New Testament. So when it came to the activity or the practice of prayer, the early church, they relied on the teachings and the words from the ancient Hebrew scriptures, or what we commonly call the Old Testament. So prior to this line in Acts 2.42, Peter is standing with the other disciples of Jesus, and they're speaking and teaching about the ancient prophets. He's in Jerusalem, where Jesus was just crucified. He's in Jerusalem, which was also the heart of the ancient Jewish faith. And Peter here, he references some of the most important leaders and prophets in their history and as a people. 
He speaks of and quotes the words of Joel, a prophet of the Jewish people, who wrote over 800 years before Jesus even arrived on earth. Peter used Joel's prophecy to make sense of what had just occurred at this event called Pentecost, when the Spirit of God descended on the people in Jerusalem, and it says they began speaking in other tongues, or uh, there was, these other tongues were other known but foreign languages to them. So he references Joel, but then he references David, who was the most prominent figure in ancient Jewish history. David was a king. David was uh, the author of the majority of the 150 Psalms. He authored 73 of them for sure, and possibly two more that are attributed to him in the New Testament. So today we're going to look at a Psalm of David to understand how the earliest Christians would have viewed and embodied this practice of prayer. The Psalms were used as guides for their prayer lives, and I believe they should be used in the same manner for us today as well. I believe this because the Psalms for the ancient Hebrews, for the early church in Acts 2.42, and for us today, teach us the language of prayer. And as they teach us this language of prayer, they give pride of place to our emotions. In essence, they spotlight the importance of emotion and our emotions in our prayer life. Now, um, our relationship to our emotion is a, a very interesting and complex thing. It's very interesting and it's illuminating when you consider the context of your life, specifically your families of origin. Now, most of us kind of grew up in one of two settings when it comes to our emotions and how we relate to and how we express them. For some of you, you grew up in a family or in an environment where you were taught to stuff your emotions, uh, to deny their very existence. So if there was kind of like a tense moment in your family, you didn't acknowledge that it was there or talk about it openly. You did not release those emotions that were stirring or boiling to the surface of your soul. You stuffed them deep down, denied them, you remained calm and quiet and learned to seamlessly change the subject. In essence, you became kind of a master of deflection. Now, some of us were raised and still respond to our emotions in that same very way. But the flip side of this paradigm is where the volume in your family of origin was turned up to 11 each night around the dinner table. Everything is on the proverbial table in this setting. If a tense situation arises or there is conflict between members of the family, the volume goes ups, up, words are said, doors are slammed, and by the end of the night they may be hugging or they may be crying or they may be doing both at once, kind of when everything is said and done. Now in those settings, in this type of family or uh, with this kind of temperament, it's about giving full vent to you, your emotion uh, to the point where they, your emotions, kind of end up in the driver's seat. This often uh, leads to you doing and saying things uh, that you have to apologize for later. Um, you know, so there you have it. Those are, in essence, the two ends of the spectrum. And most of us gravitate toward one of these two ends of the spectrum, depending on our family of origin and depending on how we were raised. So here is what is both beautiful and challenging about the Psalms. The Psalms do neither. They don't gravitate toward either. They do neither. 
If those are options one and two for how we interact with our emotions, the Psalms teach us kind of a middle way or a third way for how to manage and pray through our emotion and through our situation. The Psalms teach us to give pride a place to our emotions, but they also instruct us to neither deny or stuff away our emotions or to let them overtake us in a manner that causes us to lose control. The Psalms taught the earliest Christians, and they teach us today how to pray through our emotions, through our pain, through our fear, through our sorrow, through our our grief, our joy, our anger, how to pray through it all in the presence and with the help of God. This practice is about embracing a reflective and intentional process before God, about understanding the source of my emotions, about sorting through them about understanding the kind of the cause and effect and how they relate to and impact even my view of God and his activity in my life, about how I see myself and other people in my life. It's about dedicating yourself to the practice of pouring this out and filtering it all through the presence of God in our life. That is prayer. That is biblical prayer. That is prayer as the earliest church spoken of in Acts 2.42 understood it. That's prayer in essence for us today in whatever circumstance or whatever situation you face. So today we're going to use a psalm written by David as kind of a a template for us to understand uh, prayer, specifically how to pray through our emotions. So we'll be meditating on Psalm 3 and watch how David acknowledges his emotion, which in this case is fear and anxiety in this scenario, and then how he prays through it. What can we learn from this, and how can we, in turn, pray through any and all fear and anxiety we face today? Not stuff them or deny them, because they'll destroy you from the inside out if you do do that, yet kind of not allow them to take over, but to pray through them and to process them in the presence of God. So Psalm chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2 say this, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So this is a a psalm of David, kind of generated out of a real life experience that he's facing. And it is very clear in this that he is terrified. The the first thing he does in the psalm is draw attention to um, all of the things that he's kind of freaked out about in his life. It says that he has many foes or he has many enemies and they all want to kill him. So I'd say that's kind of a fairly decent reason to be afraid. What's interesting is sociologists and psychologists acknowledge that fear is one of the most primal or primary human emotions. And there's something about fear that is unique. It is one of the first emotions that we experience or first emotions that we feel in life. So imagine a child being born. They move from comfort to discomfort, from the known to the unknown, from calm and peace to fear. The first experience in this world and in our life is that of fear. So what's the response of a child when they're born? What's the first thing they do? They cry, and it's not a calm and reflective cry. It's a primal cry of fear. The very first emotion of every human when they are birthed into the world is a cry of fear. It's the fear of the unknown. What is happening? Am I safe? 
I, I do not like this. It also might be the final emotion that someone experiences in their life. For others, it is an emotion that's dotted all along the path of their life as well. So fear is a primal emotion. It's primary. And as followers of Jesus, we have to cultivate a personal connection to him by learning the language of prayer. And in this, we have to learn how to pray through our fears and how to pray through our anxieties. And it begins by learning how to face them and how to name them and how to pray through them. And that is precisely what David is doing in Psalm 3. Now, if you have a Bible, it may contain a heading um, that reads something like a Psalm of David when he fled his son Absalom. Uh, the background of this story can actually be found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, if you would like to kind of go back and read it to get context on what's happening here to David and kind of the why behind David's prayer. But the truncated version of what's happening in Psalm 3 and the backstory is this. This event happened near the end of David's career as king. His son Absalom essentially formed a resistance or staged kind of a military coup that was successful against his father, the king of Israel. David is forced to flee his house and the city of Jerusalem that he established as the capital for this nation. We're told that he flees with a hundred people into the kind of surrounding foothills and that his son Absalom is coming after him with an army of 12,000 soldiers chasing after him. That, my friends, is a bad day, a really, really bad day. So you can only faintly imagine the fear of the unknown that David is experiencing. That is the background for Psalm chapter 3. And this is the state David's in when he begins this poem. Um, he prays through his fear by identifying the source of his fear. What does he say? Look at it with me. He says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? They, they are saying of me, God will not deliver him. So when you see the word Lord in your Bible written in all capitals in the Old Testament specifically, that's the divine personal name of God. Uh, that's the name that the Jewish community still uses as Yahweh. But let's examine the repeated words here. What's freaking David out right now? Three times over, he says, how many? There are 12,000 soldiers on his heels in this moment. Again, this is a model for prayer for us. We're watching him as an example. And David begins by identifying the source of his fear. 12,000 people is a very visible, identifiable source of fear for David and would be for us as well. But David's fear here is two-sided. There's the clear kind of physical threat to his life, but there's another layer to this threat and that's in their propaganda. It's in the propaganda that Absalom and his army are spreading around Israel about David. And what are his enemies saying? They're saying that God is through with David. In other words, what they are saying is not that they don't believe in God. The enemies are not saying that they don't believe that God delivers people from danger kind of in general. What they're saying in this specific scenario is that God's through with David, that there's no more favor or salvation left for David with God. 
And this is a very different kind of attack. It is not a physical attack on his life. This is an attack on David's identity, an attack on David's self, his significance, his kind of status before God. So for this to make sense, you have to remember or kind of learn maybe for the first time where David came from. How did he arrive at this place and in this moment to be the king of, of Israel? So I'd encourage you to go and read the story for yourself because it's, it truly is, it is fascinating. But kind of here is the short story of David's life and how he, excuse me, how he came to this point. David was kind of a no-name shepherd boy. He was a son of his father called Jesse. He was one of the most important, or actually one of the most important prophets in all of Israel shows up at Jesse's house and says that God has told him that one of the great kings of Israel is going to emerge out of his family. And to everyone's surprise, it was the runt of the litter. It was this man, David. So out of the sheer grace and generosity of God, God elevated him to the most prestigious position and status in the land. He's the golden boy who can do no wrong, kind of in act one of his story. God blesses him. God protects him as he establishes, establishes himself as the faithful king of Israel. But there's this key moment in David's story where David's life begins to shift and his story begins to change. We transition to kind of act two, where David begins to take these gifts and blessings from God, his status, his large family, uh, his relationship with God, and he begins to take them for granted. And now David views those very gifts, those very blessings as something he can manipulate and use to his advantage instead of using them to serve the people he's been given leadership over. This takes the form of him sending, seeing a, a woman that he wants. He forces himself upon her. He gets her pregnant, and then he conspires successfully to kill her husband. And from that moment in the David story, his whole world falls apart. His family falls apart. His kingdom falls apart. The world as David knows it falls apart. So this uh, propaganda that Absalom uh, and the enemies of David are spreading is capitalizing on the notion that God is finished with David. He was God's chosen king, but not anymore. Look at him now, they're saying. What's being threatened here is not only his life, but his very identity. Who is David now if he's not a successful king and a father? That's what his foes are calling into question. And I want to camp out here for a moment because I think it is a critical point in this poem and in David's story um, and ours as it relates to our understanding of praying through our emotions. Uh, kind of one of the most um, significant steps forward or milestones in psychology in the 20th century had to do with fear and the study of fear, specifically uh, the study of fear kind of in all of its forms. Leading psychologists uh, began to come to a fuller understanding of fear. They learned that fear is primal, as we talked about, but it's also extremely complex and that it emerges from different sources in our life and there are different experiences that people have um, kind of relating to fear. Rollo May was at the leading edge of this conversation. Rollo May, can we kind of pause and acknowledge how awesome it is that his name is Rollo? Have you ever heard of Rollo May? Rollo May, if you've ever studied modern psychology in college 
or grad school, you most likely stumbled across Rollo May's name or his teaching. So Rollo May is responsible for the kind of the modern concept of anxiety, this word anxiety, which is now such a common household kind of word in, in our culture. Rollo pioneered research around anxiety and came to differentiate anxiety from other types of fear. And here's what he did. It says that Rollo said that fear is kind of an instinctive response to a very clear and present danger. Fear is when there is a, an identifiable threat. It's an instinct that kickstarts your adrenal glands. You're flooding your body with adrenaline so that you get this burst of energy and burst of clarity so that you can respond to whatever threat there is and save your life. And Rollo May said that this kind of fear is, is in, in, in kind of innate. Uh, it's positive and it's const a constructive emotion because in essence, it saves your life in certain scenarios. Rollo went on to describe other types of fear, but said that the most complex and the most unique kind of fear was anxiety. Rollo's definition of anxiety was in contrast, in essence, to fear. He said that fear is a temporary emotion. It comes on quickly. There's this flood of int intensity and energy, and then it leaves. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a very vague and kind of, diffu and, and kind of diffuse. Rollo May said that it is a feeling of dread, of weakness, and of fragility, and that it often has kind of no clear, identifiable source. It was, according to May, the dread of death that would render all of your life, all of your accomplishments, all of your relationships totally meaningless in his worldview. That was anxiety. He said that people who suffer with anxiety die a thousand little deaths each year through the wear and tear of life. Um, those disappointments and devastations that hit our life and shatter our dreams. A thousand little deaths. So Rollo um, said that what's at stake with anxiety is not our physical well-being. It's the very sense of who we are, our identity, the idea that I am a meaningful person and that my life has purpose. All of that gets called into question with anxiety. Well, as I say that, I realize how much of that I have felt and how much of that I've experienced in the past week alone. It's crippling. It's a thousand little deaths over a year or a month or even experienced over the course of one week. So I think this is kind of a helpful category for us to understand what David is experiencing here. He has a clear identifiable threat, 12,000 people want to kill me, but the propaganda of his enemies is the thing that's eating away at his very sense of self, leaving him to ask, who is he? if he is not a king? What is his identity now that that's been taken away from him? And when fear and anxiety collide, those two things can destroy a human being. So, how does David pray through his fear and his anxiety with God? How does it in the kind of next few verses work itself out? Let's look at verse three. And verse 4, he says this, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me, and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill or his holy mountain. Notice that the tone here has shifted 
something really profound uh, just took place inside a very fearful and inside of a very um, anxious person. First, notice that he moves his attention from his circumstances and onto God's character. He moves them from the physical threats and the personal threats to focus on who God is. And he does this by using images of who God is and how he acts. And this is kind of one of the challenges in reading uh, these ancient poems and reading through the Psalms, is they're, they're filled with these uh, images and metaphors that we really don't understand today. So we feel that they're kind of antiquated and they don't necessarily apply to us. We read them and then we just kind of move on. But we have to slow down, we have to examine the text and meditate on their meaning. Uh, through study and inquiry, we kind of type a lot of data into our minds. But as we meditate, through meditation, we kind of hit the proverbial enter key to process all of that data. So why would David use these three metaphors uh, to describe God in this scenario, in the scenario of fear and of anxiety? So let's kind of quickly take a look at them. First, he says, God, you are a shield around me. God, you are a shield around me. Now, I've never had to use a shield for anything. I know you're shocked by that. But think about this. If you intentionally strap on a shield to begin your day, what is your assumption about how that day is going to go? Is your assumption that this shield will prevent horrible things from, from happening to me? If I arm myself, then nothing bad will come against me? If you do that, no, absolutely not. That is not your baseline assumption about how your day is going to go. Why do you put on a shield? You put on a shield because you assume that horrible things are going to happen and that you need protection from them. What a shield does is it protects the most vital part of, of who you are, your most vital organs from being damaged or um, destroyed when bad things come against you. So do you kind of see the, the distinction that David is making here, or that this psalm teaches us here? And the shield that David describes is interesting because it's one that completely encircles him. That's the image of God that David paints for us. And that's the image of God that he has. He assumes his situation will likely get much worse. But in the same breath, he can also say, but God, you are a shield around me. And when they come against him, David recognizes and David says that the most vital and the most important part of who he is at a soul and kind of psychological level when they come against him, it won't be swept away with that attack. So when hardships or tragedy hits your life, one of our basic or our first assumptions that we make is maybe that God has abandoned us. Maybe that this hardship is a sign that God is uh, no longer present with me. And as you kind of pray through that, you have to dig beneath the surface and ask, what is my assumption here? My assumption in this scenario is that God's role in my life is to keep bad things from, from happening or coming against me. If he really was good, if he really was powerful, he would never let anything bad happen to me. He would never let anything bad happen to me so that I'm always kind of content and always happy. You can believe in that God, but I would urge you and kind of encourage you not to connect that God to the God of the Bible in any way whatsoever, right? I'd actually just say, let's make this easy for you and just go ahead and make the 
a leap to being an agnostic or an atheist because it will make the disappointment in believing in and then being let down by that kind of a God uh, much easier because that is simply not reality. That's not the God of the Bible or the experience of God's people all throughout the scripture and history. And that's not the promise that God makes to his people. The promise that God makes is that when life in this broken world kind of collapses around you, God is right there with you. He is a shield around you, protecting the most vital part of your being. And what's incredible is this. Incredibly, David is saying that in this tragedy, as God surrounds him like a shield, is when God is the closest to him, when he is the closest to God. And that is the paradox of suffering in the scriptures. The God of the Bible sometimes rescues his people from danger, but there are some times that he doesn't. Sometimes it's the very tool that he uses or allows to shape the very hearts and minds and the character of the people that he loves so dearly. So he speaks of God as a shield. So what is the most vital or what is the most important part of who he is that needs protecting? That's what he describes kind of in the following two metaphors. He says this, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You bestow glory on me and lift my head up. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. Now let's stop and think about that. He says, you are my glory. What does that mean, and why would David need to say that? Um, what does it mean to say this as you pray through your prayers, or pray through your fears? The word glory kind of might trip us up here in the 21st century Western world. Again, this is another one of those religious kind of Bibleese words. But this is a very important concept that emerges all throughout the narrative of the Bible and the story of God's people. And of course, I'm going to teach you the Hebrew word because that's how I do things. So this word glory. Um, the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word for glory is this word kavod. The most literal meaning of kavod is something that is um, heavy or something that is weighty. Uh, in the book of Judges, there is a king of Moab called Eglon who is an extremely overweight man. And the Bible calls him kavod because he is heavy or he is weighty. So it has kind of this literal meaning of heaviness and weightiness, but it also has a figurative meaning for us today. That image of heaviness is used as a metaphor for something that is of significance or something that's important or something um, that is weighty. Uh, this is not too kind of disconnected from it. We say it in English as well all the time. When someone's dealing with a difficult situation, we say, man, that's heavy or that's um, kind of a heavy weight to carry or that grief that you're wrestling through, that grief must be heavy. We say things like, you know, that person carries a lot of weight or um, we're asked if we grasp the gravity of the situation that we're in. So we kind of understand this. We get this image and this is kavod, it's importance or it's significance. So to say that God has kavod or that God has glory is to say that God is the most significant or important thing that there is in our life and in this world. 
But humans can have glory as well. It's about your status in your circle of influence. It's about those things in your life that you give importance and significance to. So as we consider David, for David, it was kind of this rags to riches story. The runny shepherd boy who became king, that for David was his kavod. But now, all of the sudden, he doesn't have that kavod anymore, right? Everything that gave him status, everything that gave him significance is gone. His family, his son has turned against him, and his family has become corrupt. His status as the king and as a, um, as a nation builder is now gone. It's been taken away from him as well. But at least he has his moral integrity as part of his status, right? No, he lost that with, remember, Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. So why would David have to come to this low point in his life to say, kind of in a new way, that you, Yahweh, you are my kavod, you are my glory? Why would he have to say, you are the thing that gives me significance and meaning and purpose in this life. Clearly, David has to say this because something else has been his kavod. Praying through his emotions, um, as we've been talking about, kind of namely his fear and anxiety, he realizes that he has misplaced kavod in his life. And because all of his eggs were in the basket of being the king, once his kingship was called into question, he crumbled. Anxiety and fear overtook him. The uh, hardship of the situation strips away everything. And all he has left to say is, God, you are the only thing that is important and significant about me. For David, it was the fact that God's attention was on him, that his care was towards him. He says, that's all I need to give me significance. He says, that's all I need to give me meaning. This is a very powerful and profound confession by David. What we see is this. His anxiety is like a cloud of smoke that is a symptom of a fire burning, and that fire is his misplaced kavod. So he prays through it, and he identifies the misstep that he took and restores back God back to uh, being the place of glory in his life. And finally, he ends um, this statement in verse 4, and he says this, He says, to the Lord I cry out, and he answers me from his holy hill, or some of your translations may say holy mountain. This is amazing. Consider the confidence that David has here, kind of in light of his situation. He says he calls out to Yahweh, to God, and that he answers him from his holy mountain. How how can he, or how can we know this? How can he be so confident? And it has nothing to do with him, and it has everything to do with where God is answering him from. Where's that? It says it's his holy hill or his holy mountain. What's he he talking about? It's kind of strange, isn't it? This holy mountain or this holy hill, it kind of comes up all throughout the book of Psalms. David, this holy hill, what he's talking about is he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the holy mountain that is in Jerusalem. Um, Specifically, what David is talking about here is he's talking about the highest point in the city of Jerusalem that he himself had set up, which was the very dwelling place of God, the tabernacle where the temple would ultimately be built. Now, um, what is it that happens in the courtyards of the temple on a regular basis? 
kind of on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, um, on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, that would allow a very selfish and sinful man like David to look towards God and know that he's been forgiven and that he's been shown grace. What's happening in the temple that could kind of give him this confidence? That's where the sacrifices were offered. That's where um, animals were offered as a substitute and as an atonement for people's sin. So kind of as it went, the animal dies in place of the sinner. The animal bears the guilt instead of the perpetrator of the sin. In essence, it's the death, that is a sub, the death of the substitute that covers over the failure of the, that sinner and of that sin, of the one who is praying and of the one who is looking towards God in the temple. So what gives David the confidence that God is answering him? It's because he's looking towards the temple. He's looking toward the substitute that has covered over his sin and gives him confidence that Yahweh is for him and that Yahweh has forgiven him. (laughs) As you think about this, don't you wish this kind of 3,000-year-old story, this 3,000-year-old prayer was still relevant to modern people? I obviously kind of say that tongue-in-cheek, right? Because we are standing on the other side of the cross as we read this story, uh, this, this prayer of David. David is praying this prayer, looking toward Jerusalem, uh, looking toward the substitute. But you and I are on this side of the cross. And because of that, we read that through a very different lens. Our conviction is that Jesus' death, in his death, he absorbed into himself the death that we deserved And in his resurrection, he provides both a a covering and a source of new life and grace for those who would believe and turn towards him. Jesus, this other son of David, who was executed in Jerusalem near this very same holy hill. So this allows us to pray through this prayer as followers of Jesus, but also to go on the exact same journey with God that David went on. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this psalm or really kind of unpack it for us here today, but the remainder of the poem is a simple and kind of a beautiful acknowledgement by David that whatever happens from this moment forward and in this situation, whatever happens is in God's hands. And he has full trust and peace in that. David knows that God is with him like a shield. He knows that God is for him and he puts him in a place that puts him in a place of kind of perpetual peace where fear and anxiety for David don't rule the day. So David gave full vent to his emotions. He prayed through them and he was able to hand over his situation to God. So what we can learn from this is that God can handle our fear. God can handle our anxiety. He can take the full vent of your anger. Don't be afraid of it. Don't stuff it, but don't let it take you over. It ends with David saying this in verse 8. This is beautiful. It says, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So David here recognizes that um, the situation is completely out of his control and that he will only be delivered through God. So what would it look like um, for you to kind of take this same journey? What identifiable source of fear or anxiety do you have in your life at this moment? What would it look like for you to identify that, 
to kind of dig beneath the surface and get what's at the root of that and what's causing that fear or that emotion. How can you work through this experience by turning toward God's character, by turning away from your own kavod and turning to God's, by turning those circumstances over to God to discover a peace like David had? How many of us know kind of that gray cloud that hangs over our life, that sense of where is my life going? What, what is happening around me? Who am I if I am not that? Who knows that anxiety, kind of that sense of dread? Some of us need to do some real soul searching because it could be that our anxiety or fear comes from misplaced kavod. We find our glory, which just means the status or significance that we have in life. We find our glory in all kinds of silly and absurd places. We'd recognize that if we just had eyes to see. We seek meaning or significance in uh, maybe our title at work, uh, acceptance by others in that relationship or this. We think those things will be the things that will finally fill that void in our life. Or we seek kavod maybe even in even more superficial things like how many likes we get on a social media post or by attaining a certain physical look or by um, whatever else that might be for you. And here's the truth is that there will come a day whether it's as dramatic as David's situation uh, where, or we're on our deathbed, where every person you built your sense of worth on won't be there. Be there. Or it'll be the thousand little deaths that Rolla May spoke about of disappointment and hardship. And we will wish, we'll be in that moment, and we will wish that we had taken that misplaced glory and put it with God where it belonged all along. So some of us, I need to take this journey and pray our prayer, a prayer like David's today, kind of wherever you are this morning. So as we end each week of this series, we're going to be reading uh, this prayer from St. Clement. Zach read it last week, and as we said last week, it's one of the earliest prayers known um, in the history of the church. And so instead of reading the entire prayer uh, again this week, I want to focus on and meditate on a specific portion that's kind of near the prayer's end. I'll read through it twice as sort of a meditation for us today as we end. So wherever you are, I would encourage you to join me as we pray through and meditate on these truths together. Let's pray. God, for all generations, you have been faithful and just in your judgments and are wonderful in your power and majesty. Wisely you have created, and wisely you have kept things in being. All that we see shows your goodness to all who trust in you. You are faithful, kind, and merciful. Come, Lord, let your face shine upon us so that we may peacefully enjoy all good things. May your powerful hand be a roof over our heads, and may your strength preserve us from all wrongdoing. Give us peace and harmony to us and to all the inhabitants of the earth as you gave them to our fathers who called on you with trust and with faith. I'll read it one more time. For all generations you have been faithful and just in your judgments and wonderful in your power and majesty. Wisely you have created and wisely you have kept things in being. All that we see shows your goodness. To all who trust in you, you are faithful, you are kind, and you are merciful. 
Come, Lord, let your face shine upon us so that we may peacefully enjoy all good things. May your powerful hand be a roof over our heads and may your strength preserve us from all wrongdoing. Give peace and harmony to us and to all the inhabitants of the earth as you gave to our fathers, like David, who called on you with trust and faith. In God's name we pray. Amen.